Chapter Two of Julia Reed. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Julia Reed by Pansy. Chapter Two, in which I am puzzled. She came forward with that inimitable air of grace and ease which I afterward discovered always characterized all her movements. She was a slight, delicately formed lady with fair hair and bright eyes a lady who wore pale blue dresses and looked well in them. Dr. Douglas introduced me briskly. Here is a very weary, very damp young lady, whom I commend to your tender mercies, Mrs. Tyndall, Miss Reed. And Mrs. Tyndall laughed a low, silvery little laugh. Herself shook the raindrops from my hat, sent the doctor into the hall with my cloak and rubbers, and had me buried in the depths of a crimson chair, with a sort of at-home atmosphere floating around me, before I had time to realize that I was in a strange land and alone. Now cuddle yourself up here, and put your feet on the register and be comfortable, while I give some directions concerning your trunks, she said brightly, as she floated from the room. Doctor, I said, the moment the door closed, why have you never told me how lovely she was? The doctor's smile seemed rather grave, but he only answered, Do you like her? like her i said with an enthusiasm of sixteen why i think she is perfectly lovely ere we had time for comparing our views the lady was back and chatted volubly a hundred little bright airy nothings addressing herself principally to the doctor bidding me be as quiet as a mouse and rest a great deal which thing i at least appeared to do until supper was announced that dining-room was a perfect fascination i had never been in a room quite like it I thought of Esther's description of Uncle Ralph's home in New York, and felt the similarity. It was not so much the grandeur that impressed me, though everything was certainly grand through my eyes, as the exquisite fitness of things, the blending of colors and shades, the matching of everything, without seeming to be matched, indeed, just as things match in the woods on a perfect day, when the sunlight shimmers in between the leaves. The carpet was thick and soft and green, with sprays of autumn leaves strewn here and there, as if a soft wind had fluttered them down, and soft feet had pressed them smooth before they had time to wither. The walls were hung with paper of that peculiar creamy tint that gives one the fancy that there is a golden sunset outside, and that somehow the rays have managed to gild every side of the room at once. There was a bay window and plants in it, an oleander, very large like a tree, and a bird hovering over it, and the bird chirped and twittered gently and tenderly as we passed by. Two or three different varieties of geranium were in bloom, and as the leaves shivered when I brushed my dress against them, they breathed their fragrance all about the room. Old English ivies came out from behind pictures and wound around the frames, and trailed over mantels, and crept behind doorposts, apparently following the bent of their own wild, sweet fancies, and one spray actually reached down and lay among the green mosses and brown and yellow leaves of the carpet, stopping first, though, to twine itself around a little table and lay one of its great green leaves on a plate where mosses and ferns had seemed to fling themselves together, having red berries nestled lovingly among the green, and now and then a gray old lichen standing sentinel. There was furniture in the room, of course, chairs and tables and sofas and silver and china on the dining table, but these all seemed to have retired quietly into the background, necessary articles indeed doing their duty gracefully and well, but by no means pushing themselves forward to be looked at and admired. I have been in many rooms since, 
grand rooms where much money had been expended on their furnishings, and they seemed to me elegant warehouses, where elegant upholstery and exquisite carving had been gathered together. The chairs and sofas seemed to me to stand out pompously, saying, Admire us, are we not elegant beyond description? Into the chairs and sofas of Mrs. Tyndall's home one sank luxuriously and murmured inwardly, How delightful all this is! Not the furniture, you know, not the carpets, not the money so lavishly exhibited by proxy, but it, that indescribable, blended whole, which mountains of money can never gather together and arrange. At the table I first met Mr. Tyndall, a tall, handsome man, with exceeding suavity of manner, one of those men who are continually given to complimenting, not coarsely, nor even obnoxiously, except as you find yourself wishing that he would forget himself and yourself for little whiles at a time, and talk about something else. One thing I remember which impressed me strangely, the instant, well-bred clatter which Mrs. Tyndall began among the cups and saucers, together with an immediate flow of talk, and the slightly bowed head of Dr. Douglas as he shaded his eyes with his hand and offered his silent thanks, a movement which no one seemed to notice or respect in the least. For myself I found no chance to follow his example, and I am not sure that I should have done so anyway. I felt confused and not at home. My life in my mother's house had been a very secluded one, and this was really the first time I had ever sat down to partake of food where no blessing was asked. I remember I felt sad to think that Mr. and Mrs. Tyndall were not Christians, and also I thought it strange that they did not ask Dr. Douglas to perform so simple and proper a duty publicly, stranger still that they did not respect his silent offering. The doctor donned his coat and hat immediately after tea, came to me to know if I had any commissions for him, then saying that he had several calls to make, but would try to get in early, took his departure. "'Will you rest here in this easy chair and have a cosy little time with me, or would you like to go directly to your room?' Mrs. Tyndall queried in a kindly tone, as the door closed on the doctor and her husband. The sitting-room was as bright and perfect in its way as the dining-room had been. I dreaded the thought of my own room and its silence and loneliness. I shrank from the feeling of desolation that was trying to creep over me, and accepted the easy-chair and Mrs. Tyndall's company. She brought a bit of bright-colored fancy-work and curled herself among the cushions of another easy-chair, and then began her busy little tongue. "'Dr. Douglas is a very dear friend of your family,' I think he said. This inquiringly, and I assented. "'I suppose you are very fond of him, then, as is every mortal who comes in contact with him.' "'Is he so very popular?' I asked, feeling extremely gratified, for Dr. Douglas seemed almost as much a part of our family as my brother Alfred did. "'Oh, very. I think myself that he has but one fault, and that is—' Don't you think him the least bit in the world fanatical? Did you notice him this evening at the table? That does amuse me so, such an utterly unnecessary parade of goodness, not that he does it for parade. I don't think that of him for a moment, but all people are not entirely charitable, you know, and then I am always just a little bit sorry on Mr. Tyndall's account. He isn't a Christian, I am sorry to say, and such little unimportant trifles do have such an influence over some people." I really think we cannot be too careful of our influence, don't you think so? To say that I was amazed by this style of talk will hardly express my state of mind. Certainly, I thought people ought to be careful of their influence, 
but what possible influence for evil could there be in a man's bowing his head in silent acknowledgment of mercies? Here had I been reflecting a little on the same subject, only to be filled with shame at the thought that I, a professed Christian, had eaten my bread like a heathen. But it seems there are two sides to the question. Yes, I said hesitatingly, I think we ought, but then I... Don't you think it is proper for a man to ask a blessing on his food? Well, my dear, that depends, like everything else in this world, on circumstances. For instance, where the man is, if he is, at the head of his own table, of course it is eminently proper. But if, on the contrary, he is only a visitor or a boarder, and the head of the house is not a Christian, why then the influence may be very unfortunate. Now, in this case, of course it does Dr. Douglas no particular good. He can remember his mercies, if he finds any at our table, in his private room to his heart's content, and run no risk of prejudicing others. Besides, a prayer, you know, does not need to be accompanied with bowed heads or closed eyes. It can be utterly unseen or unknown to men, and quite as acceptable. So where is the use in exposing oneself to ridicule? Mr. Tyndall cannot be persuaded to look on such things in any other light than as a pretty little scene gotten up for effect. He says it is equivalent to saying, I am holier than thou. And while he has too high a respect for the doctor to think so of him, yet the provoking man persists in saying that a little religion sets well on a professional man because it is so unusual. So you see, it just exposes the whole thing to ridicule, and while I have the very highest opinion of the doctor and his motives, I cannot help feeling sorry that he will not think of his influence a little, just on Mr. Tyndall's account, you know. It is natural that I should feel anxious about him. But how I am running on, about your dear friend, too. How do I know but you will tell him every word I have said? Only I do know that a young lady whom Dr. Douglas calls his friend could never be guilty of anything of the kind." I was very much astonished. Evidently, there was a side to this subject on which I had not thought at all, a danger of injuring people by our consistent lives as well as by inconsistent ones. I wondered that I had never heard this view advanced before. I felt sorry for Mrs. Tyndall that she should have so peculiar a husband as to be injured by what seemed to me so simple a thing. But there had been weight in her words, I thought, and I suppose I need not add that I resolved to be careful not to add to her evident anxiety by my own thoughtless adherence to custom in this matter. It certainly was very true that one need not cover one's eyes in order to be thankful for one's daily bread. I was rather sorry for that closing sentence of Mrs. Tyndall's, for I was very eager to disclose my new ideas to Dr. Douglas, and had not until that moment imagined an impropriety in it. But the moment I heard that sweet voice say, could never be guilty of anything of the kind, with a strong emphasis on the word guilty, I straightway grew shocked at my own wickedness, and resolved not to open my lips to the doctor. Of course not, I said aloud and promptly, in answer to her last sentence, and Mrs. Tyndall laughed, a slow, sweet ripple, her laugh was the softest, clearest, and most musical one I had ever heard, and answered, My dear, I hadn't an idea that you would do such a thing. I know you ever so much better than that already. Do you attend the same church that Dr. Douglas does? was my next query. Oh, yes, and our seat is directly opposite his, and it is directly behind the pastor's pew, for which latter fact I am very sorry. Our minister's wife is a good soul as ever lived, 
but she has absolutely no more taste in a dress than a post has. Her mixture of colors is terrific. Mr. Tyndall declares it will give him the lockjaw yet, and her children are such forlorn little frights. It is too ridiculous. I positively think it is a sin for a woman to be so regardless of appearances. There is no excuse for it, and Mrs. Mulford injures her husband's usefulness by that very thing. I really feel sorry for you, Miss Reed. I know your taste in dress is exquisite. There is no surer way of indicating that fact than by a suitable traveling attire, and to think of your having to sit behind Mrs. Mulford in her green bonnet is terrific. She is the last person in the world who ought to wear anything green, and so, of course, she has appeared in a green velvet hat for the last three winters. I wonder if there ever was a girl of sixteen, possessed of sufficient brain, not to be gratified over a delicate, gracefully worded compliment about her taste in dress. I am not sure that it is a desirable quantity of brain to possess. I am to this day a believer in sincere compliments, and decidedly a believer in exercising taste in the matter of dress, and yet I know to-night, perfectly well, that it would have been better, both for Mrs. Mulford and myself, if Mrs. Tyndall had not said on that November night a single word of what I have been telling you. Well, I didn't know it then, and I laughed at her description, and flushed a little over the personal part, and glanced down at my dress and wondered if it could be true. I was simply enough dressed. Nothing could be quieter than my plain brown alpaca. It fitted nicely, but that was a matter of course with me. Nothing that my dear mother's hand had cut and made ever fitted other than nicely. The shade of the brown was exquisite, reminding one of autumn leaves, Sadie had selected the dress for me, and the knot of ribbon which furnished the plain linen collar at my throat was just that peculiar tint of blue which matches so wonderfully with rich browns. I had a fastidious eye for colors. I rather prided myself on it, so I was the more ready to laugh over Mrs. Mulford's green bonnet. "'What of her husband?' I asked presently. "'He doesn't wear a green bonnet, at least.' Do you like him? No, thank fortune, he cannot distract me in that way. But there are various ways of doing the same thing. Do I like him? Oh, certainly, and his wife, too. I would not be guilty of disliking our clergyman and his wife. But he is somewhat peculiar. He has extremely odd ways. In the pulpit he makes the most comical use of his handkerchief. If he would only forget to bring it just once, it would be a great relief." I am sure he must need a great many sets in the course of a year. I think he ties knots in them, at least he twists and untwists them a great many times during service. Then he has a curious little twitch in his mouth that is really very mirth-provoking. Just pass me that book on your left, please. I can read just like him, and I'll favor you with a specimen, lest you should be taken unawares next Sabbath, and your nerves not prove equal to the occasion." The book I gave her was an elegantly bound copy of their church hymn-book, and the page at which she chanced to open contained that glorious old hymn, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. It had been my father's, it was my mother's favorite. Many a time I had heard her dear voice, low and tender, tremble through the touching words. Until this time I had never heard them without feeling something very akin to tears struggling in my heart. But that evening, as Mrs. Tyndall's lips sweetly syllabled the words, the small mouth twitched and twisted in so ludicrous a way 
that before she had finished the first verse I was convulsed with laughter. The amusement proved too fascinating to be resisted, and Mrs. Tyndall and I giggled and choked and frolicked through the four matchless verses of that matchless hymn. Her face resumed instant gravity when the last line was read, and she said kindly, I am very sorry that Mr. Mulford has allowed himself to contract such a ridiculous habit. I have given you a specimen, not, of course, for the purpose of ridiculing him, but simply to show you how nearly impossible it is, for young people especially, to maintain their gravity. I don't think he has an idea how bad it can be, or he would certainly try to correct it. Isn't it sad to think what trifling things will mar the usefulness of ministers? I sometimes wish they could overhear all the funny remarks that are made about them, so that they might learn greater carefulness. Is he a fine preacher? I asked, grown grave too, and not a little ashamed of my outburst of mirth. Yes and no, that is, he writes well and is quite an orator, but his sermons are apt to be all in one strain, the style which Mr. Tyndall calls being personally preached at. He says Dr. Mulford never seems to think that the sheep need special attention, for he is constantly pitching into the goats. He will talk in that absurd way, she added, with the sweetest and lightest of laughs. Of course, I cannot but be grieved at his utter indifference. I am fearful that he is becoming more and more unconcerned. Dr. Mulford's unfortunate habit of lashing all who are not Christians, his really uncharitable way of speaking, is having a very unfortunate effect on Mr. Tyndall. Still, the doctor is a good man and means to do just right. These are only errors in judgment, you know. I fancy that he must have been preaching to a very different class of people before he came here, and either repeats his old sermons, or else he has grown into that old-fashioned style and cannot overcome it. Do you attend Sabbath school? I asked, with a slight hesitation. Some way I fancied a sort of incongruity between the elegant little lady in front of me and Sabbath school work but she answered promptly and brightly, Oh, yes, I have a class, a very pleasant one. Senator Dowling's daughter is in it, and Judge Coleman's two daughters, and several other young girls of that stamp. I have only one trial, a girl who has recently been placed in the class. She is the daughter of a widow, a dressmaker, who has lately moved here. The girl is a good, respectable creature, but it is the most inconsiderate thing to place her in my class. Of course it isn't possible for her to feel at home there. She has no associates, and it is unpleasant for her, and disagreeable for the girls, and positively painful for me. I spoke to Dr. Mulford about it. He is not the superintendent, but I had a good opportunity, and I thought I would let him know how matters stood. But men never understand such things, especially ministers. Dr. Mulford bestowed a withering look on me and said, we must remember that the girl has an immortal soul that needeth caring for as much as any in my class. Don't you dislike that style of talk? It sounds wonderfully like Kant to me, and I do think that if there is any one thing that a Christian ought to try to avoid, it is Kant. I answered very few of Mrs. Tyndall's questions that evening. Indeed, she did not wait for any answers. Her talk flowed smoothly and musically on without pause or hindrance, which was fortunate for me as in truth I should have found it very difficult to answer her, for I was beginning to realize that I was not quite sure what I thought about anything. She expressed so many new and startling ideas, and all in so sweet and gentle a spirit, and seemed so thoroughly imbued with a desire to be watchful of her influence, careful not to do injury to the cause of Christ, 
that I was well nigh bewildered and contented myself with asking questions. My next was in regard to Dr. Douglas's class. That he had one I had learned from himself. His singular tastes, or whims, or whatever one ought to name them, are very prominent in Sabbath school, Mrs. Tyndall said, speaking of the doctor. There was a very important class of young ladies, some of the very first young ladies in our church, some, too, whom we had been at infinite pains to get to identify themselves with the school, and we wanted Dr. Douglas to take the class. The ladies expressed their willingness to receive him as a teacher, and don't you think he declined the class? Would not desert his post, so he said. You must know he has a pet class, a half-dozen or more of wild girls, whom he has picked up from goodness knows where. Shop girls, I believe somebody said they were but they are not connected with our church in any way, and I think myself that their proper place is in the mission school. Well, he refused to give up those girls for this important class. I really felt provoked with him and told him so. What did he say? I asked, wondering secretly how she ever found courage to interfere with Dr. Douglas's plans. She answered carelessly, Oh, the old story about those girls having no religious training outside the Sabbath school, and his hoping to gain an influence over them. All very true and proper, of course, but then the very fact that they are so ignorant only proves that a teacher could readily have been found competent to teach them, while it is really very difficult to secure a suitable teacher for the Bible class of which I spoke. We had a great deal of trouble, and only half succeeded. Mrs. Mulford took the class, but I don't think she is very popular, and some of the ladies are just a little offended to think that Dr. Douglas declined the class. I do think the doctor is too good a man to allow himself to be governed by whims at the expense of his usefulness. Mr. Tyndall says that Dr. Douglas is... And just at that point the arrival of Dr. Douglas himself checked my companion's volubility. End of chapter 2 Recording by Tricia G.